1: Taking all these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored
2: welcome everyone to episode 266 of literary treks your dedicated star trek books and comics show here on the trek fm network i'm just one of your hosts dan gunther and joining me once again is the wonderful the healthy for the most part bruce gibson bruce how's it going today (laughs) I'm doing okay, yeah, I had the flu,
0: and I'm still kind of recovering from it, but i'm 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 much better than what I was before and so uh yeah, I got con crud when I went to Star Wars celebration
2: pretty bad oh that's that's the absolute worst and uh I noticed you did the the final episode of Live from the Edge. you were still a little bit under the weather there, but a really valiant effort. I just wanted to uh, give you a shout out for that because that was, that was impressive.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. Yes. I mean, you know, and of course I had Brandy and Chris there to help out. So they were real troopers and helping me get through that. But uh, I had to, you know, had to be there for that. You know, it's the last episode of the season. So we had to talk about that. And I didn't pick up on it until you mentioned in the chat on that
2: episode that Una was called out on discovery for number one's name. That's right. A name that originally comes from the novels, uh, thanks to Greg Cox, David Mack, Kevin Dilmore, and the person we're going to be talking to later in the feature, Dayton Ward. So that's pretty There you go. Yeah, the, (laughs) the
0: novels work into the shows and vice versa.
2: Yeah. And I mean, part of that is the, you know, having Kirsten Beyer, I think on the staff there, you know, kind of whispering in the ears of people, you know, they came up with a name for her in the novels. I don't know for sure that's what happened, but if I were to guess, I'd, I'd say that's probably what happened there.
0: Yeah. Or, or maybe they're even, you know, kind of paging through the novels and just trying to find ideas. I don't
2: know. Yeah. I. But <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. That would be cool. So yeah, like I said, uh, in the feature today, we do have Dayton Ward, Uh, as a guest and that will be to talk about his new star trek the next generation novel available light uh, which continues on from his previous tng novel as well as a bunch of stuff from section 31 control and previous novels before that as well so definitely excited about that but before we get there we do have some news that we want to talk about and we do have one comic to review as well Uh, but speaking of comics some of the news we're talking about today is this Star Trek Year Five series that's coming from IDW. And uh, we've got some news about this uh, from the WonderCon panel a few weeks ago. And uh, this sounds really cool, for one thing.
0: Yeah. And from what I understand, this isn't just a series that's going to be like six issues. This is going to take place over the course of the next two years. So it's a, mm-hmm. a monthly series uh one issue a month for
2: 2 years about the 5 year the last year of the 5 year mission for TOS and that's uh that's pretty surprising i didn't realize it was going to be this uh large of a series but that's pretty cool um it it seems to me like everybody kind of comes along at some point and wants to make the official version of the end of the 5 year mission and stuff uh we've gotten this kind of before in like the lost years novels and and all that kind of stuff. But this is IDW, what they're calling the definitive fifth year of the five-year mission of the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. So. so the fifth year is the longest year for the
0: Enterprise because if you read literature, it's like you're saying, there have been some comics, there have been novels. I mean, heck, a lot of the TOS novels in the past decade are typically, you know, this novel takes place in the last year of Kirk's five-year mission. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, the fifth year is pretty heavy, you know? And yeah, there's been different versions of the last mission leading into the motion picture. But, you know, there's a way that time kind of gets altered or there's a way that alternate universes get created. That's all I'm going to say. So
2: you can have multiple ways that things happen. Ooh, definitely interesting. One one thing that I like that we got from this news is they're kind of saying that the whole writers of this series, they're kind of fun making it function like a writer's room on a TV show and kind of breaking the stories like you would if you were doing a season of television. So they're really kind of taking this seriously and really trying to make it feel like uh, the final season of the television show. I think that's kind of neat. It's, it's, it's cool that they're getting into that headspace to create this.
0: Yeah. And they are going to visit the Tholian colony and a visit to Sigma Iota two where a piece of the action took took place. So um, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: we've never, I I do recall something. I don't know if there's ever been something written where we revisited that planet, but I know that one of the characters from that planet showed up at the trial of James T Kirk.
2: Yeah. I remember that. Um, Interestingly enough, the episode of deep space nine that eventually became trials and tribulations. One of the ideas they were kicking around was a a revisit to Sigma Iosha 2. Uh, to kind of see what had happened there. And they had apparently turned into a planet of Star Trek fans, basically, Um, which would have been interesting. But I'm glad we got Trials and Tribulations, personally. Yeah, I agree with you on that. (laughs) Well, another bit of news is about a new Star Trek Discovery miniseries coming up. And, you know, I've really enjoyed the previous miniseries. We had Succession, and before that, we had The Light of Kalos. But this one especially, having just come off the end of season two of Discovery, I'm really excited about because this one is kind of uh, the aftermath of the second season of Discovery. So we've got a little blurb here. In the aftermath of the 2019 finale, everything in Discovery has changed. And as Laurel and Pike try to negotiate a fragile peace, Spock finds himself grappling with the fallout from what happened with Michael Burnham. And the mysteries about her still left to unravel. So I'm really excited about this. And I mean, like I said, I'm still kind of riding that high from the end of the season. So, you know, them following that up with this announcement is just perfect timing.
0: Yeah. So for us, the season hasn't ended. It's going to continue through these uh, issues because exactly. now we see what
2: happens after the last episode of discovery. Exactly. And and yeah, this, uh, it's a three issue series. Uh, The focus is going to be prominently on Spock, and it's written by Kirsten Beyer and Mike Johnston, who have written the previous Discovery comics as well. And uh, the art is by Tony Shasteen, who is the same artist from those previous books, so we know the art's going to look gorgeous. Um, And yeah, it's all about the fallout from those mind-blowing events of season two, according to the little uh, blurb here. And we should be seeing the first issue arriving in August, so definitely looking forward to that.
0: Yeah, and eventually the series will take us up to the 5th f- year of the 5-year mission and going right into the motion picture. Oh wait, I'm sorry, no it doesn't. Forget it. forget. It. That's
2: That would be amazing. It would be. <laughs> in two in three issues. Wow.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, uh all of our news this week and our review is all comic related uh and the uh the comic that we're reviewing this week is the third issue of the q conflict so uh, we've talked about the first two issues already and in those issues basically we have the crews of the enterprise e the original enterprise deep space 9 and voyager and they've all been brought to this place by q and three other omnipotent quote-unquote omnipotent beings we have Trelane. Aelborn of the Organians and the Metron from the original series episode arena. And they basically all pick teams and they're all competing against one another uh, to determine who wins this war without, you know, galaxies being destroyed.
0: Yeah. So, you know, when this series first started off, I was just kind of lukewarm to the whole thing, but I will say that once I've come to just accept it for, what it is. And I mean, that sounds bad to say it that way, but (laughs) honestly, um, I enjoyed this issue. I really did. I I think maybe because I went, I was like, Oh yeah, this one again, not too thrilled, but I really liked it because now I'm starting to understand the motivation that Q is, basically warring with these other god like beings and he wants them to play this game because if they play this game with him they'll he'll start leaving them alone and they're of the opinion of we can't stand this guy we can't stand Q (laughs) and so we're going along with this but just to get him off of our backs and I I kind of like that. I like I'm more interested in these beings dealing with each other than them manipulating our crew members.
2: Mhm. Yeah, and I initially had some big problems with the premise of the series. And one of them for me and I didn't really talk about it last time, but uh that was Aelborn of the Organians because when you meet him in the original series, he's he just abhors violence of any kind and you know, wants the Klingons and the Federation to stop fighting. So the idea that he'd, you know, be in this competition and fighting the other Um, omnipotent beings seemed really odd to me, but we get a little bit from him in this series where he says, you know, Oh, I I agreed to do this game because, you know, we can stop the violence and it's all Q and Q's doing all this. And we, we don't want to fight and that sort of thing. I was like, okay, that's fitting a little bit more in with the philosophy of the Arganians that we met. So it's kind of, they're answering some questions and making me feel a little better about this whole situation.
0: Yeah. And I start to wonder also, since this isn't the last issue of the series, what do you think? Do you think the crews will remember this or were there, they'll their
2: minds will be wiped of it? I feel like their minds will be wiped. I mean, there's certain things that, uh, you know, we've got original series crew members. They can't really get that big of a glimpse of, of what's to come. And, you know, uh, you know, basically Voyager being still in the Delta quadrant, you know, they can't, <laughs> you know, they can't know about their fate before their, their time and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I really think this is going to be, uh, something that gets wiped from their memories or, or time gets reset or, you know, yeah. the usual Q shenanigan stuff. Or like, it just never happened,
0: but mm-hmm. now to kind of get into some spoilers. So they're sent on this, uh, this new game now, like, you know, uh catch the flag or whatever. Um mm-hmm. and so then they uh Trelaine's like, yeah, I'm just a little bored. This isn't all that exciting. And so he brings in the doomsday machine.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's kind was, of
0: fun to see all the starships fighting
2: it. Yeah, it was a nice little twist. Um, you know, and it makes sense. Some you know, fearsome foe. I, I kind of feel like how it was wrapped up was a little bit too easy. Just, you know, we have more powerful torpedoes now, so we can do yeah, more damage. Yeah, quantum torpedoes to it. can destroy it. Yeah, which leads to the first little bit of a, an issue, the really nerdy issue I have with this, and that's that Voyager didn't have quantum torpedoes. Voyager only had photon torpedoes, uh, but she fires quantums oh. in this. I guess. Well, they were borrowing. I, I, they borrowed some. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that must be it. I think <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh yeah, no, it's it's fun to see them all kind of work together against uh the planet killer. Um I feel like it wasn't as big a threat as it should have been, but uh it was still lots of fun for sure.
0: And then there's an ending that we probably shouldn't discuss, but it leads into the next issue.
2: Mhm. Yeah, there is definitely a dangling thread that uh causes Cisco to look meaningfully and say, oh, no. <laughs> As Kira looks on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe it has something to do with Deep Space Nine. I don't know. Could be. I I don't know. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I definitely I enjoyed this issue like you, Bruce. I kind of just have to put aside that, you know, OK, it's just silly. It's, you know the character motivations I can get behind a little bit more now because they're kind of like, uh, they have to go along with it because they don't really have a choice. And you know, they're, if it prevents them from fighting and causing supernovas and death and destruction, then yeah, I can see why they would get on board with going through this. So I'm a little bit more at ease with the premise of the comic than I was before.
0: Yeah, me too.
2: But, uh, I, you know, Not too
0: bad. Not bad.
2: I'm interested to see what happens in the next one. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, before we get to the feature, uh, we do want to talk about some of our listener feedback that we got in the Babel Conference uh, for Literary Treks number 264, No Member Berries. And that was all about the first novel in the Titans series, Taking Wing, by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangels. So our first comment comes from Justin and <laughs> He says, after three episodes in a row where I disagreed with your overall rating, I do indeed concur wholeheartedly on this one. Nice little, uh, reference to Riker canceling the, uh, self-destruct there, by the way, I caught that. Um, I also read Taking Wing after having read many of the later Titan novels, and I absolutely love this novel. The diverse crew and the Romulan politics are amazing. I also love that Tuvok is involved, as he's one of my favorite characters, and Spock is used so perfectly here. Everything works for me in this novel, and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on The Red King. Yeah, thanks, Justin. I agree. Um, I enjoyed this a lot more than when I first read it years ago and, uh, I found myself really enjoying this one. Yeah,
0: same here. And, uh, I'm really looking forward to the red King. So having read these before rereading them, I'm enjoying them even more so. So Randy Cogden says, "Will your podcast discuss a hard rain. I just finished reading it and it was fantastic. I have always loved the Picard Dixon Hill stories. And uh, my response to Randy was that one isn't on the list, but maybe one day I haven't read that one. I used to see that all the time and go, Ooh, one day I want to read that. I haven't done it. And yeah, our list is long,
2: but who knows? It may pop up someday. Have you read that one, Dan? I have not, but yeah, I'm familiar with the cover. I've seen it. I might even own it, but uh, I've never read that one. No. Um, it's always interested me though. I, you know, Picard is Dixon Hill. What's not to love? Exactly.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it would be a fun book. And the fact that he says he thought it was fantastic. Mm, now I want to read it.
2: Yeah. Darn it. There's so many novels. I, mean, I If we could read them all, we totally would. Um, well, we will. We'll be here forever, though. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Casey Pettit says... I finally caught up on listening to the backlog of literary treks. So it's high time. I joined the discussion on the Babel conference. I really enjoyed your discussion about taking wing. I read it a few years ago and am currently reading seize the fire in the Typhon Pact series. I'm glad you addressed the names of the Titan crew at the top of your discussion. I enjoy the diverse nature of the Titans crew, but still to this day, get tripped up on the names It doesn't matter if I have my own pronunciation in my head. I find myself trying and failing to discover the true pronunciation each time. Am I right, Chaka? (laughs) Now, apparently the name of this particular character on Titan is, the pronunciation is Chaka. It's spelled K apostrophe C-H-A-K apostrophe exclamation mark apostrophe O-P. Uh, so in my head, when I see it, I'm like, Kajak op, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it's kind that's of a weird one. Yeah. It's definitely a strange one. And that's one thing Titan has is many, a uh, very diverse crew. And this particular character, Chaka isn't even humanoid. So yeah, uh, definitely some interesting names there. Chaka reminds me of land of the lost, the old mm, series yeah.
0: from the '70s, because I think his name The one guy's name was Chaka or something like that. So anyway, (laughs) Um, Joshua DeVry says, great episode. I'm in the middle of hacking away at my to read pile. And after hearing this, I really want to dive back into the Titan books again. I also appreciate what you said about the Romulan intrigue. I feel like readers spend so much time trying to memorize the Titan crew and learn everyone's names that it's very easy to fly through the Romulan stuff and then slow down during the scenes on the ship. The book definitely rewards rereaders. Absolutely. Totally agree with <laughs> that, of course. And uh yeah, I think before the first time I read it, I was so more intrigued to know the new crew. And now that I know the crew, now I'm picking up on really what the story is about.
2: Yeah, definitely me too. Um I'm I'm glad you mentioned It rewards rereaders because I've definitely found that to be the case. Good call there. Oh, and finally, Cody Harned asks, has there been an episode on the next generation novel Contamination? Uh, Unfortunately, we've not covered that one yet. If I recall correctly, that's one of the earlier hardcover novels for TNG, I think, or is it just one of the numbered early ones? Yeah, it's number 16 of the TNG novels. All right. I can picture the cover for some reason. I couldn't remember if it was hardcover, or soft cover, but yeah, no, we've not covered that one yet. Um, and it's not on the list at the moment, which <laughs> is ever lengthening, but you know, we do intend to read it someday because like Bruce said, we're going to read them all. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I
0: hope so. Um, yeah, I read this book back in the day when it came out, um, mm. Sheesh. Yeah. So you know how long ago that was. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't remember much
2: about it, but I know I read it. Cool. I've never read it myself. So um, you might have to fit that and a hard rain in at some point for sure. Yeah. Maybe we should have a contest. I'll have to
0: think about it where the winner gets to choose the book we read. Oh, that's a good idea.
2: Hmm. And
0: the person has the option to come on to the show to discuss it. I, I don't know what the contest would be. Don't get your hopes of people. I don't know. I'm just like brainstorming right now.
2: Ooh, my gears are are spinning now too, though. That's, that's cool. Uh, stay tuned. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> but, uh, seeing as that just came up on the fly and <laughs> we've put no thought into it whatsoever, we'll stick a pin in that for now. And one final little bit of feedback that we got is also an email from William Jones.
0: Yeah. And so William says, can anyone tell me how many books featuring Dr. Pulaski there are I have a few, but I'm trying to complete my collection. I figure you guys are the authority on Trek books. Please help. Thank you. Well, William, you came to the right place. We are the authority, (laughs) not just on Trek books, but on Dr. Pulaski books. So, (laughs) Not really. But uh, I wouldn't say we're the authority, but we can help you out on this one. And... I have read quite a few books with Dr. Pulaski featured in the books. There's other books where Pulaski is in the book, but doesn't have a huge role in it. So I don't know how far down the list you want to go of where Pulaski is and where Pulaski has a prominent role and doesn't. But uh, one place to go look is at memory-beta.fandom.com or just Google memory beta And you can type in Pulaski's name and you can find a list of all her appearances in not just books, but also in comics. But the one thing I wanted to mention is a recent book. She was in Enigma tales is one of my favorite Pulaski novels, uh, written by Una McCormick and features Garrick. I would definitely encourage you to read that book. If you haven't already.
2: Definitely agree on Enigma tales for sure. Uh, great novel and good call with memory beta because it's a great resource. It's not always completely up to date with the plots of every single novel out there, but it's definitely good if you want to find out things like where you can find certain characters and that sort of thing. So uh, definitely a resource that I'm sure Bruce and I both use quite a bit uh, when trying to figure out stuff in the novel verse and in the comics. So uh, definitely a big help. Yeah, and I haven't done a count, but
0: I would say it looks to be probably uh, maybe eight to ten books that feature Pulaski in a fairly prominent role. It's not a whole lot, so you should be able to complete your collection if that's what you're gunning for. I also remember her in one of the... um, Double Helix books, the vectors with Kira—that's a pretty good one—and of course the fall. Uh, those are some recent ones she was into. I've
2: got to ask though: Are you looking for stories with Pulaski in them uh, because you're wanting to add them to your collection and read them, or are you looking so that you can avoid them? <gasps> that is, no, I'm so just kidding. Wrong. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I like Pulaski. She's a great character. I'm just uh just channeling some uh common feelings about her character out there. But no, Pulaski's great. I'm just just bugging you.
0: <laughs> well, I guess William has to win our contest and give us a Pulaski book to read. Oh, there you go. If we figure out that what this contest cool. is. Anyway, again, just talking off the you know, top of our heads. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, we're gonna put a pin in that. Uh, until we figure out exactly what we want to do with this uh, contest that we've literally thought up in the last five minutes (laughs) so we're going to stick a pin in that and jump over to the other side of the page and hope you'll meet us there for the feature uh, where we'll be talking with the author of star trek the next generation available light well, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we've got a special guest today to talk about his new novel, Star Trek The Next Generation, Available Light. We are welcoming Dayton Ward back to the show. Dayton, how have you been?
1: I've been busy. How about you guys?
2: <laughs> busy too, but probably not as busy as you've been with uh, this return to the world of the next generation here.
1: Well, my work's been on done on that for a while. You know, it's uh, I wrapped that book up you know last fall so i've i've been busy on other things since then you know how it works you you, oh yeah you you put it to bed then you forget about it until it's time to talk about it because it's hitting stores (laughs) and you got to remember all that stuff that you've purged from your brain from six months earlier and replaced it with stuff for the new project
0: yes well we're going to help remind you what's in this book so you have your next
2: project to work on
1: i haven't read it so let me know (laughs) how it went so
2: oh it's really good we'll tell you about it
1: yeah okay (laughs)
2: Definitely. Well, this is a pretty special book because uh, pocket books, of course, gallery books and Simon & Schuster kind of took a bit of a hiatus from the Star Trek line for a little while there. And we're finally now getting back to the post nemesis, post destiny, Star Trek, novel verse, relaunch, whatever you want to call that whole set of books with that shared continuity. And this has been one that's been anticipated for quite a while because of where things were left before uh, this novel. So this novel follows up not only on the previous TNG novels, like your previous Hearts and Minds, but also the big hanging threads from David Mack's novel, Section 31 Control. So first of all, what was it like to kind of return to this world and pick up some of those storylines?
1: Well, it was a relief. For one, because uh, we were all hanging on, you know, pins and needles, or sitting on pins and needles, waiting for the licensing agreement to be finalized, and there was a lot of stuff that went into that that has absolutely nothing to do with the books themselves. It was just, you know, somebody new at Simon and Schuster and certain other things that I'm, you know, either don't know about or probably shouldn't talk about, but it's above my pay grade. Let's just say that it's above. It was above my pay grade and that of the editors and the authors. So. Once all that was done and they let us fly again, um, it didn't take very long to kind of get back into the groove because we've been chomping at the bit or champing at the bit to get on with this for a while.
0: So I've heard a lot of people mention that the discovery books have been coming out as gallery books as more of the trade paperback. And now when they're seeing you, this book, the next generation book come out, they're like, oh, wait, this is going that same format. Can you give us a little insight as to why the publisher decided to go with the bigger format of book?
1: Well, I mean, it's the trend of the of the industry, really. Uh, it's it's the bookstores. Apparently, apparently, there's the perception that readers pre- prefer a more robust format for the books. You know, something that lasts a little longer. And there's also a larger profit margin on the books. Let's not let's not pretend that's not an issue. Um, but that just seems to be the trend as far as book sales themselves, whether you're talking about brick and mortar stores or you know online retailers, and the production schedules for books like these are also a little different than mass market um, as it's i've done since i've done two of these in a row now in the trade format the schedules are much more flexible in terms of having to you know accommodate unforeseen circumstances or changes in deadlines and schedules it seems like you can you can switch tracks so to speak with a trade paperback with a lot less pain and anguish than you can if it was a mass market um, there's still limitations, of course, because you know the titles have been solicited and bookstores are expecting to see that stuff in the store. But it just seems like for the last couple go arounds, you know, whenever we say, "Oh, well, you know, if we do X, Y, Z, the deadline might slip for you delivering," and they'll say, "Okay, that's fine." Whereas before it would have been what? Uh, so it's just uh, it's an interesting facet to the process. I would think that they'd want to do mass markets because. They're cheaper to produce or something. But apparently I'm backwards on that, just like, you know, I am on a lot of things.
2: Excellent. Well, we're just really happy to get the books back in any format, really. And uh, if I'm given to understand things, I, I think you guys, as far as uh, Chris Bennett has been saying on the Trek BBS – it's kind of the same cut that you guys got before, but because of the higher price point, a little bit more money goes in your, your guys' pockets at the end of the day as well.
1: Yeah, what he's saying is, the, is the, the royalty percentage that we get on sales of the copy. You know, It's all based on the cover price. So even if you buy it on sale at a deep discount through a retailer, we still get paid a royalty based on the cover price as printed on the book. So yes, in that regard, it's, even though it's the same percentage, that we would get that we were getting before, it's based off a larger cover price. So in theory, we're supposed to be able to earn out our advances faster and start earning royalties quicker. We'll see. Hmm. <laughs> it's an interesting <laughs> theory. I'm anxious to have it tested. You know, and so is my kids' college fund. So.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Excellent. Well we're definitely happy to support the books and, and like I said, we're just really thrilled to be getting them back again. And like I said, we're picking up a lot of these storylines from previous novels, but not only just those novels that I mentioned earlier, we've got storylines going way back to the A Time To series and Articles of the Federation, which we actually recently covered on the show as well. So just kind of really worked out for fortuitous timing there. I mean, this is so awesome for us that we're reading those and then this.
1: (laughs) I hear that's a pretty good book. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So.
2: <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, yeah, so we've got those storylines. We've got the, uh, basically the ousting of president Min Zeif and all of that stuff coming to a head here. And in this one, this is post the revelations about section 31 and the artificial intelligence control called Yuri. uh, and all of these admirals that are kind of behind the scenes are getting arrested left, right, and center, um, what was that kind of like to revisit those storylines and, you know, what kind of uh, research and consulting did you have to do or was all of that pretty much cemented in your mind going in?
1: Well, I mean, I knew I remember the high points, don't get me wrong, you know, but I, I mean, we're all familiar with um what went down in the time Two books, um, at least the, 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 big, the big events, the big twists, but I did go back and revisit the books, uh, that Dave Mack wrote and the overall, and also a couple of other points from the, from the entire mini series that I thought might be relevant for referencing, but, um, and also the stuff that we did with stuff like the Typhon pact and the fall and even the next gen books I wrote after the fall, um, because they all kind of play into the portrait repainting painting of Picard at this point, after all these revelations have come through. So yeah, I had a couple of conversations with Dave to refresh my memory on certain little bits of continuity to make sure we got it right. Um, or if it was open enough where I could have room to play, that kind of thing. Um, and then he and I, of course, we, we, our talks, this, th- these were extensions of conversations we had going back to when he was finishing up Control and I was writing Hearts and Minds. Um, so we're talking late 2016, you know, or so we probably had the first of these conversations because we talked about what we would do next. And, you know, at the time it was not, not realizing that we'd be waiting a longer period of time before we could get at it again because of the licensing issues, but we had already kind of had a couple of conversations, including one, I think at shore leave, you know, in the bar where so many bad things happen, um, (laughs) about where we would take the story after control and after hearts and minds. And, you know, we, we knew that this was not a one and done book kind of story. This is something that we could play with for a couple of books for sure. Um, And so that begat the conversations about what I was going to cover in available light and where I would leave things that he could pick it up so that he could pick them up for his book that he's working on right now. That'll be out later this year. Um, you know, where's the great part? you know where was the point for the baton the baton handoff and things like that? So, uh, yeah, this has been going on for a while
0: <laughs> well, i I really like you know it, this is really tough because. I don't want to get into spoilers too soon, but I feel like we're going to hit them soon. But I do like how this book started off with the arrest of the various admirals. As a matter of fact, I was getting my car worked on when I started reading this book. And when they said my car was ready, I'm like, are you sure?
1: (laughs) Well, I'm sorry about that. Um, Yeah, I really wanted to start off the book kind of like, uh basically right after right after the events that dave portrays in control and just a little bit kind of as if you remember from the end of hearts and minds when akar and 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 picard are talking and he's and akar is giving picard the business about all this stuff um i wanted to kind of to just step back a couple paces and then run back into it again so to me the best way to do it was to uh go at it with a couple of the admirals that are prominent prominent names with all of this stuff and and then 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 revisit that conversation between Aka R and Picard before getting on with the main a plot of the book.
2: Mm-hmm. and we are definitely going to talk about both plots of this book because yeah the a plot I think is really interesting as well. Um I just want to talk a little bit about those admirals again. I I'm even more in love with Necheyev than I was before because who knew that she had these safe houses and these secret codes and all this stuff and, you know, a go bag. But, I mean, it makes total sense. She's totally the kind of person that would do that. It felt very mission
0: impossible to me.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's fun. I just wanted her to be a little bit of a badass. I mean, we we know she's a no-nonsense admiral and she, you know, she could totally put Picard in his place. We've seen that happen on TV, but I don't know. I just wanted to have a little fun with one of the admirals and I decided that Necheyev uh, made the best candidate for what I wanted to do. Um, I mean, I had three or four of them to choose from and I thought, well, I wanted – it had to be somebody recognizable. And I didn't want it to be Ross because I had other plans for Ross. As you know, as you get to the later on in the book, um, <laughs> so I wanted to, and I and I couldn't, I couldn't highlight them all because I didn't want to drag the the beginning of the book down too far. But I, I wanted to have sort of, a, you know, a contrast in how these people are apprehended. So you know, you've got Ross who f- goes fairly quietly, and then the Chad who's like, ah, not not on my watch, I'm out. And so I kind of wanted to have a little fun with that. And she seemed like the perfect place.
2: <laughs> and that was a lot of fun. Also, just uh, having met the actress who played her, and I'm probably going to butcher the name, but Natalia Nagulich, mm, I think.
1: I think that's how you say it.
2: Yeah. And she's, she's a very small woman. She and is, yeah. Just also the nicest person in the world, which, you know, I know. probably shouldn't have been surprising, but really was. <laughs> I think
1: it's a thing with actors that. The nicer they are, the more fun they have playing evil characters (laughs) or bad characters or, you know, or those or you know, somebody who's not nice. Let's just say that they seem to have. Mm -hmm. It's like they can unleash some inner 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 thing that they keep harnessed all the time and only let out on special occasions. And then they just have fun with it. I think it's the same reason, you know, the the different Star Trek cast members like playing their mirror universe counterparts, you know, Mm because they get to let it off the chain a little bit.
2: Well, let's uh, move on a little bit. Um, Actually, the the other thing that I did want to ask about with regards to the storyline is we do meet the Attorney General uh, for the Federation, uh, Philippa Louvois, who, of course, is a familiar face in the past from the past uh, of TNG. And I was wondering, was this the first time we see her in that position or is that from another uh, source as well?
1: I set that up at the end of the fall uh, in Peaceable Kingdoms. Uh, you know, we have the Federation president who is the, you know, the, the, the Bajoran slash Cardassian agent slash bad guy. Um, I introduce her as the attorney general at, toward the end of my book in that five book sequence. And that was, I did that for the pure fun of it in that other book. Cause I wanted a familiar face there. And I thought it'd be fun to kind of turn things on its head. And, and because you know, the last time we saw her, she and Picard were kind of at odds with each other. Uh, but came to, you know, they came to came to admire and respect each other by the end of that episode. But that's the last time we saw her. And I thought, you know, that's a great character that hasn't been used in forever. Um, why not? Uh, I'm throwing everything else in the end of this book to kind of tap cap off a of five book series. Why not one more character? Um, and then when it came time to have somebody like that for this, it was just a natural progression. Like, well, I've already established her. So, I you know, I've done that homework. Uh, or I've done that legwork.
2: Well, she did fit in perfectly. And and just by chance, I happened to watch The Measure of a Man uh, just like a week before picking up the book. So <laughs> that worked yeah, out really I had to go, well. I had
1: to go back and rewatch the episode and see, you know, mannerisms and, and her personality so far. And her, you know, we, we knew that she was a very strong proponent of the rule of law. And uh, I wanted to see... You know, is there was there space for her to have have her viewpoints evolve over the course of several years, or you know, were there certain things that were just inviolable? You know, uh, in terms of you know these these are things she holds to be true and are never going to waver. That kind of thing, Uh, and so we get to play with a little bit with that toward you know with the scenes that she has in the book. I, I I think she's grown a little bit, but at the end of the day, she's still you know very fervently. Uh, a believer in the rule of law and justice so and I think that's what this needed at that point in time
0: yeah I never got the sense that this character was being set up to implicate Picard and find him guilty it just to me it felt like she is there to actually just honor the law and find out the truth wherever things fall
1: exactly She's, she's, she's in pursuit of the truth no matter what where that truth will take her. And no matter, you know, the consequences, it's like she is in service to, to the truth. The first duty, you know, is to the truth. We heard Picard say that. And uh, of course that comes into play at some point in the book. Um, But she's a true believer. And I mean that, you know, like in the nicest possible way. So, so yeah, she's, her, her mission is to pursue the truth regardless of how that truth reveals itself or what it does reveal.
2: I also really liked the kind of interplay between her and Aka'ar when, uh, for example you know, she's kind of putting on a front that, you know, Picard needs to go down. That's kind of the language she's using. And Akar says, you don't really believe that you wouldn't just be coming to me with this now, if that were true, if you really believe that. And she's kind of like, ah, damn it.
1: (laughs) Well, again, that goes back to, you know, has her, has what, what about her has grown in that regard over the last time, since the last time we saw her. And it's like, yeah, you're, and she's she's between a rock and a hard place. You know, you can agree with that person and and still be the be the you know the the the, the protector of the truth. Uh, it's it's kind of like you know when a, a domestic abuser or a, ch- a child abuser gets their comeuppance. You know, or what we think is their comeuppance. Um, you know, I don't necessarily agree that that was the right course of action, but I'm not losing a lot of sleep over that guy. That kind of thing. It's sort mm. of the same or it's sort of a flavor of that type of conflict perfect,
2: well, before we get into spoilers, uh I want to talk a little bit about the uh the a story as well um and then after that we'll kind of get into spoilers for both parts of the story but uh basically, the enterprise comes across a ship that appears to be abandoned. Um, they investigate it and they come up against this salvage team, uh, from this kind of salvage guild that's looking to take the ship for themselves as well. Um, I'm really enjoying this part of the book because I love a lot of the interplay between some of the other characters and Teresa Chen, I've gone on record as saying is one of my favorite of the, uh, post nemesis characters of the original novel characters. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this ship the, and the people aboard it are the Nijamri that we eventually work, learn and their technology that uh, is kind of revealed in this story.
1: Well, what do you want to know? <laughs> There's a lot there unpacked <laughs> in, that, in that question. Um, I don't know. I It's it, the idea of. Uh, of a of a of a ship that does what this ship does. I'm, I know we're not in the spoiler part of the book yet, so or the interview yet. So I'm being very vague. But the idea mm-hmm. of a ship that does what this ship does is something that I had written down as a idea a long time ago. It was in a, not necessarily for a Star Trek story. It was just an idea that hit me, and I just sort of put it in a you know put a pin in it and then put it in my little file of ideas and then forgot about it over the course of many years. Um, So when it came time to come up with an A-plot for this book, because my editor wanted to combine the fallout of Section 31 for Picard, but also a more traditional Star Trek story, exploration story. Um, So I went into my little idea file and this one popped out. And I, to be honest, hadn't thought about it in years and then once I started to play with it, uh, I liked it more and more and then expanded on it and kept pulling on it to make sure it would hold together uh, before finally committing to it. Uh, it was just, I don't know, it was just one of those crazy ideas that you get while watching, probably, and I'm sure I got the idea while watching something else and thought well what if i take something like that i like the lost ship derelict thing and then put this spin on it or it's the refugee or it's the asteroid with the people inside it or you know it's the ship with the crew in suspended animation which we've done before i was just looking for a new twist on it and this thing fell out of my idea folder and off we went you know and then of course i sat down with my traditional beverage of choice for you know writing and pounded it out <laughs>
2: Excellent. Well we'll we'll get into spoilers, I think, pretty quick here. Uh the one thing that I wanted to say, and I, I saw somebody saying this online that uh, you know, oh, they just find another ship, another old ship. It's like that other novel, Armageddon's arrow. I just want to tell anybody out there who hasn't read this yet before we get into spoilers, they're not the same story. This is a completely different story, and I think you're going to really love where this story Yeah, goes. I've got
1: like fifteen Enterprise finds a derelict ship ideas. And none of them are the same. It's just, and that's the only thing they have in common. I mean, you like know, it's. you yeah. want me to write a holodeck story? What do you guys want out there? No, um, I got, and I got four or five of those too. But I, I hate holodeck stories, so they'll never happen. They'll never happen.
2: Here, here. Unless it's a Captain Proton story.
1: Yes, that's the only exception to that rule.
2: <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, I think this is probably a good time. We, it's, it's going to be tough to talk about this without getting into spoilers. So. Uh, let's uh, give that warning now. Uh, if you don't want to be spoiled for this book, pause the podcast, go grab it, read it. It's really worth it. I think this is an excellent novel yeah. and come right back. We'll
1: be here when you get back.
2: Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, we eventually learn over the course of their exploration of this ship through Teresa kind of uh, being on the more bold side of people in her investigations. She kind of disappears in this beam of light And you slowly come to understand that uh, like a transporter, she's been dematerialized and they think, you know, she's been beamed somewhere and they're kind of searching for her, but she hasn't rematerialized anywhere and instead is kind of saved in the mainframe of this ship uh, which is called, and I'm—I I think the Asijamal—is that correct? Close enough for jazz. <laughs> All right, perfect.
1: <laughs> well, hang on. I tell you and, what. Let me uh, check. I will check the pronunciation guide that I had to put together for this thing. Oh, uh, perfect. Because I think I's not not. It may have been Osijamal. I don't remember anymore. Osijimol. uh So the short "i" sound.
2: So yeah, she's uh, stored in the computer banks of the Asijamal, and also inside a program that's kind of a virtual reality program and she finds out she's in amongst thousands of refugees aboard this ship who are seeking a new home um i really enjoyed this story and i i kind of got the feeling like you said uh when i was reading this that this is this was an idea that like ooh, i want to explore that idea um do you happen to remember where you got it from I'm, or or I mean the where that idea the came
1: idea from? of you know people act with their computer generated avatars you know that's that's Tron mm-hmm. or the Matrix or um things like that uh, or cyberpunkish you know I, I guess you could it's it's almost it's not quite a throwback to cyberpunk because that's a completely separate genre within science fiction that has its own tropes and everything like that and that's not what i was gunning for um I was just trying to put a star trek spin on the idea of a virtual habitat um, but and not be a hologram and not be um you know not not be yeah not be a hologram I wanted to be a computer generated simulation but the twist is of course that you're also a program inside the simulation. You've been you have been broken down and put inside and you're just a soft your software, just like everything else. So yeah, there's a little bit of Tron, and a little bit of the Matrix there as in as obvious inspirations.
0: So there's a sense in a way that they have discovered immortality. And it doesn't really the book doesn't really touch on that. But in some ways, I was kind of expecting that as they're trying to pursue a new home world, that some of them may revolt and say, well, we don't want to. We want to stay in the quote matrix.
1: Yeah, there's, it's, I don't really come right out and say it, but I mean, you get right up to the line. And I, and I toyed with that idea, but I thought that's opening a whole can of worms that I don't know that I have time and space to address. But the idea is that, you know, their bodies have been, you know, they're, they're, they're stored in a transport in basically a transporter buffer. Um, and so they're not aging, your, your body's not aging and everything has been, everything has been, you know, morphed into a computer program. So as long as the computer's running, uh, you're going to be there, your, your program is going to be running. So yeah, it's, it's an, it's, it's virtual immortality. Um, and, and the idea is that However long it takes for them to get to their homeworld, you know they won't. They'll be the same age as they went in, so they won't have lost that time. And but 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 the the way that it, the simulation works is it helps them. I guess you do. You, you, you get a sense of the passage of time, but you don't get the sense of the unrelenting passage of time. If that if that makes any sense, um, you know every day is a great day and all that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. It was. I talked, I thought about it. I thought this, this almost demands a follow-up, you know, 10 years down the road to see where we are, you know, what happened when the, when the, when the ship gets to the planet. And like you said, maybe there's a faction of people who are like, I'm, I'm digging it in here, you know? Uh, but I, I would, I would think that most people would, would want to get out and do the real thing. You know, I don't know. That's a good, it's a great question. And it's one of those fun things. It's always, you leave it for later, you know, leave, leave your audience wanting more so that I can be asked to come back and write a sequel. <laughs> <laughs>
2: definitely i I really liked a lot of how this book handled that kind of other reality the the virtual space there's a lot of things and i feel like it would be difficult to do in a tv show or a movie which is where you know when books do things like that that's where it shines uh there's a moment where basically the environment uh crashes and and the, the people are still conscious, but they're nothing to interact with. And I think like on a TV show, that would usually be handled by showing them standing in a black void right. or a white void or something like that. But in this one, we see from Teresa's point of view, she you know looks down to where her hands would be or she thinks she's looking down, and but there's nothing there. She's just absolute nothingness. And that was chilling.
1: I, li- I liken that to your iPhone being in low power mode. and your and your battery is at one percent and and so all your apps and you put it in low power mode so all your apps quit feeding you know data they quit going out to the internet and refreshing or all that kind of stuff and you're just kind of hanging on by your fingernails waiting for your battery to die out um that's sort Mm -hmm. of what i wanted and and you're right I, i i think in some cases it probably would be easier to convey this on tv because you'd be able to give it something like that like you know them in a void or floating in a void or whatever. So yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a challenge, Uh, but it was also kind of fun because it's, and it's kind of scary if you think about it.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, The other thing that I liked was the, uh, the little kind of things they said they were adding into the program to make it more real because uh, basically every day would have been kind of perfect if they didn't put in things like just little bits of reality just all these little things that, like, I would not probably not think of if I was designing a virtual world. I would probably I guess, want everything to be perfect and slowly go mad.
1: <laughs> I guess it's sort of like, and I, and I've never played games like this, but I mean, I I understand that there are games out there where you simulate, you know, everyday life. It's called I think it's called The Sims, right? And mm-hmm. you basically just go in and you have an avatar and you do stuff that you would that you might do in the real world, but you're doing it in the in the computer world. And I personally don't see the appeal, but it's got its fans, and it's been going on for you know years and years. So who do I, Who am I? I don't. What am I? I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but that's sort of the idea. Is that I think you know we talk about the, or I talk about how the, the brain the mind has to be stimulated. So they introduce these programs that that provide challenges and 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 and, and variations on the day, so that they actually feel like they're living a real life. And then I guess I don't I don't know that I've actually I didn't go so far as to say that you forget you're living in a simulation, but um, but you're content enough that I guess it's just not the idea is that you're content enough that you don't you don't really dwell on it. Does that make any mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, you're not makes quite sense. drugged or brainwashed or anything like that. You're, you're aware of who you are and what you are and where you are, but it's all cool because the way the program is interacting with you, it, it helps you get over the speed bumps that might come up from time to time.
0: Yeah, because they're also aware when they need to come out of that to do repairs on the ship. So it's not like they're so sucked in that they're not aware that they're in this simulation.
1: Right. It's not like you know the movies where they completely forgot about the real world and it all broke down around them. And, and then when they come out of it, they, they don't understand why they're living in a dystopia or you know a post-apocalyptic horror because they were busy playing VR um that's not what i wanted i wanted them to be aware of their situation but but okay with it because for them that was the most desirable way to make that journey um they didn't want to be in suspended animation and completely unaware of what was going on around them as their ship moved through space they wanted to be alive and aware but that's just not feasible you know to to house that many people and feed that many people and and provide atmosphere for that many people over so you know you know generations possibly so This was their this was their way of defeating that problem.
0: Well, now that I think about it, it's almost like flying long distance. It's like yeah, they got the monitors; you can watch movies, and you kind of just lose yourself in a movie, but you're still aware that you're on the plane, and you can still look out the window.
1: Yeah, and or on the train or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And plus, suspended animation had been done to death, and I was I just wanted to I was trying to figure out a way to do this where okay, so it's not a suspended animation deal, and it's not a generation ship what's left (laughs) you know know? um and and you didn't want a race of people who lived long enough to see all this happen you wanted you wanted uh i wanted i just wanted that was the big motivation was what can i do that hasn't been done at least not you know four dozen times already um this seemed to work it's
2: basically really cool in-flight entertainment
1: there you go (laughs) There you go. It's just expanded in-flight entertainment that goes on forever and ever and ever.
0: It's the way I want to travel. <laughs> if I go to Australia, I want to find this ship. There you go. I, I can't sit on a plane exactly. for like 22 hours.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But imagine doing it for 2200 years <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> or however long they were on the ship. You know, it's like eh, right. I've seen all the movies.
0: Yeah. And I can see where they're going to want (laughs) to get off the ship because they know this life that they're living really isn't real. And and then you want to have children and you want to do other things.
1: And think about it. They're, you know, the people that are in this environment, they're working and living in this environment. So they're doing things and creating things in this environment. So, you know, the people who write books and the people who make movies or the people who make other types of entertainment or, you know, make discoveries or whatever. All that's still happening inside this virtual entertainment. Otherwise, you know, we get a hundred years into this voyage and I've seen all the movies and I've read all the books. Now what? You know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of a, you know, it'd be fun to go back and, and, and really dig into it. And then, I don't know, it's the idea of doing it as a not Star Trek story still out there. I just, you know, let me try to find some free time between now and when I'm dead. Well, Well,
0: if you did it as another Star Trek story as a follow up to this, there's other ships out there that they lost contact with that we don't know what happened to them. So there's still potential there. I'm just planting the seed and allowing that to grow (laughs)
1: your voice to my editor's ears. So we'll see what happens.
2: Perfect. Well, another group that we meet in this book, uh, they end up being um, an antagonist to the crew of the Enterprise. This is the Jiral Salvage Guild. And they, of course, think that this is an abandoned ship and are trying to lay claim to it themselves. And we kind of meet up with, you know, this first ship and they end up getting dispatched by the the more powerful um, Najamri ship. But uh, we meet up with a second group. And what I really like about this group of people is they're very uh they're varied there are lots of different types of people it's not just this kind of monolithic group it's kind of this loose association so i ended up really liking the character of brenamar uh who has a code of ethics that she follows she's a former military officer and really kind of comes around to picard's way of thinking and appreciates that there are people aboard this ship and decides to do you know kind of her part in protecting them and helping them repair their ship. But at the same time, we get others like the uh, guy who follows her named Krellen, and they're more willing to compromise their ethics to score big. And I was kind of wondering what the inspiration for this group was and maybe the people who make it up.
1: There's a little bit of the Orion you know, merchants in there and uh, different salvage or different freelance... Um, contractors like you'd see on firefly or um even the alien the salvagers at the beginning of aliens you know that that find ripley's shuttle and think they're gonna score big on the salvage like find out that there's a there's a person aboard and alive that was probably one of the key inspirations and it's it's also another reason why i went the route with the virtual environment for the for the nejamry because so far as the 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 salvagers understand this is an abandoned vessel. The only people that are on board are enterprise people. And so when Picard's trying to make the case that there's all these other people, but there's no evidence of that, <laughs> you know, that, that, uh, that, that just fuels the fire with the, with the guys who are just trying to make a salvage haul, and they, you know, they laid set, they laid salvage rights. And under any other circumstances, they might have a valid claim, but you know, obviously we have to throw this monkey wrench into it all. um, so that was that was the idea was was that I wanted to, I wanted to create a civilian esque antagonist I suppose is the closest word though it may not be the proper word um, to play to mess you know to play off the card while he's dealing with missing people on the ship and how to help the the, the jamry with their energy issues and all that and then have this other irritant um, that was where that was coming from.
2: Yeah, they're kind of a group that I I certainly wouldn't mind seeing them again as well. Um, I guess Picard's kind of leaving the area now, uh, as we find out at the end of the book, they're heading oh, back to... Oh, well, way
1: to spoil it Earth. for me, man. Thanks. I hadn't read that far yet. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but uh, yeah, this, this I, I feel like they would be kind of an interesting uh, group to keep popping up in the Odyssean Pass and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah,
1: that... I had that question written down in a, in my little idea folder was, you know, these are, these are, these are the sorts of people that I would like to see again. Um, and I like, you know, like, yeah, you said, you know, they're varied in personality and their personal codes and their personal ethics. I'm like, well, that's, that's how it should be. Um, and as far as, you know, them being an antagonist for Picard, you know, I think we've covered this kind of ground before. I don't like villains who are, black and white villains. You know, I don't like, I don't, I like shades of gray and I like nuance and I, and I like writing them in such a way that the reader can go, you know, I kind of understand where he's coming from. Um, mm-hmm. I love to have that little play there. Um, it's, it's, it's way easier to write the mustache twirling bad guy, but you know, the best villains. And I don't know that I call these guys villains. It's just that the best antagonists, you know, they think they're doing the right thing for the right reasons. If they're well written, if they're, if they're, if you're doing it right as a writer, you know, that you, there's always a way for you to sympathize, to make the reader sympathize with them even a little bit. And it makes them feel dirty and icky and they want to go take a shower after they read your book and all that. But you know, you still scored.
0: Yeah. Cause I didn't think of them initially. I thought of them as villains, but you're right. As soon as we got to know them and they got to know the enterprise crew and then there was a certain respect or trust or, you know, an understanding then you realize it's like you said, that shade, those shades of gray that they I mean, they're they're set. Sa- they're scavengers. So they're they're doing their job. But then once they learn to understand what's going on in the ship, then they respond to that and not just go, oh, I don't care. I'm going to take the right. ship anyway. And you with me.
1: Right. And that's obviously something I wanted to avoid because that's just lazy. Um, mm-hmm. It's more fun to do it the other way and to have those conflicts. And, you know, it's OK to have a couple people on the ship. You know, voice those sorts of viewpoints. Like, you know, hey, what is wrong with it? Why can't we do this? Because you know, you would expect your antagonists to go through all those wickets before arriving at a course of action. And and so it's fun when 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 you can write these different viewpoints and have the, then have your main antagonist arrive at a at a decision. Uh, and maybe it works, and maybe it doesn't. We'll see. You'll still see. When have, you some you still have some
2: action and space
1: action. Yeah, gotta have gotta have the, gotta have the pew pew a little bit. So. <laughs>
2: And I mean, even Krellin at the end, he's pragmatic more than anything else. He kind of realizes, I'm going to lose everything if I keep trying to pursue this. Okay, okay, what are your terms kind of thing? Right.
1: Yeah, like you said, they're, like Bruce said, they're, j- they're just guys or ladies doing their job, trying to earn a paycheck, trying to get by, right? And you know, sometimes it's not the most glamorous work. And, the, the, and, and you know, in the history of their time doing this job, they've never encountered something like this. So they don't know how to act. They're like, what are you talking about? Thousands of people stored as computer programs. I don't see anybody there. It's just the four of you guys. Well, of course, I, I. it's
2: probably not spoiling things too badly to, you know, say that in the end, the Enterprise crew, of course, is able to help uh, these people and repower their vessel and even kind of uh, point them in the right direction of a possible new homeworlds. So it's kind of a nice, happy ending for this group. Um, maybe not such a happy ending for some other characters in this novel, uh, from the, the B plot, the fallout from the section 31 revelations. And this, I have to say was a surprise for me because, um, you know, as far as bad morals go, Admiral Ross wasn't the worst of them. Um, he was kind of a good guy in deep space nine, but, you know, we found out in season seven, he's got his, you know, hooks into section 31 a little bit. And of course in the novel verse, uh, he's up to his neck, but, uh, in this novel, he meets a bit of an untimely end, uh, when he and his defense attorney are both killed by a person whose, um, husband was killed by section 31, uh, what was that like to take this character that kind of has a huge history and um kind of craft the ending of him here?
1: Well, to be fair, that was not my intent when I outlined the novel. <laughs> I did not have anything in there that said, you know, Ross dies or Ross gets shot or anything like that. I that was not my intention going in. Um only as I started to get to those scenes and start to set it up, uh I started thinking, you know, it'd be great to just make this hard left turn right here um, and not even tell my editor that I'm doing it <laughs> and see what happens. Um, so what was ha-
0: the reaction from the editor?
1: She was like, okay, then. Uh, you know, actually, she I, nobody, nobody gave me any grief about it at all. Uh, I mean, I did talk to her about it at one point, like before the novel was delivered. I said, hey, I should probably tell you uh, I'm off in Ross. Uh, because I know Dave was starting to figure out what he was going to do with the follow up book. And he, I didn't want him to get too far down the rabbit hole and maybe leaning on Ross as a character. And then, you know, here I come along and I've screwed that up. I uh, think
0: that would be so funny if he says, oh yeah, I got this great idea for Ross. And then you kill him and say, so what are you going to do no, now?
1: That's, 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 that's <laughs> those, those are the Vanguard days and those are far behind us. We don't do that anymore, <laughs> uh, but no, it was just, um, I had had a conversation um, with somebody who, you know, uh, and one of the topics came up was, you know, Star Trek novels are very, you know, we're very, we we, when we write these Star Trek novels, like my, myself and Kevin uh, in particular, it's like, you know, we're very good about respecting the toys and, and, and not doing anything too crazy with the toys and every, and I, you know, this individual said, you know, it'd be nice if you broke a couple of toys once in a while. And I said, hmm. okay, I'll call that bluff. Bam. And uh, lo and behold, they were okay with that idea. Uh, so, uh, you know, I just, I don't, I don't do that sort of thing very often. I'm not, I'm not really looking to off anybody. <laughs> it's not, that's not what happens when I go in <laughs> to write these stories. Uh, I prefer, I prefer happier endings for the main characters or at least the familiar characters. But, you know, um, I figured, you know, when are, are we going to see Ross on screen again? No. Now, remember, I wrote that before all this other stuff came along uh, with the new Picard show. So n- never say never, you know, Hey, we're never going to see so-and-so on screen again. So what could possibly go wrong? Um, <laughs> but no Ross, you know, uh, Barry Jenner, uh, you know, he passed away a few years ago. So the, the chances of us seeing Ross again in any capacity are pretty, pretty low. Um, so it was mm-hmm. a safe, for me, it was a safe way to go as far as doing that, taking that action. But, uh, it was kind of fun because, I didn't communicate it ahead of time, so I just sort of let it let it lay there and see what happened.
0: Yeah, it was certainly a surprise. And then just recently I heard from Matt Rushing, of course, who used to host the show, and he just started reading the book, and I get this text from it says, Damn, Admiral Ross.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and that was the other thing, too, is I, w- when I decided that I was going to do it, then it was about how to do it. And, you know, I wanted to avoid the cliché of, you know, section 31 gets to him or, you know, that kind of thing. Or it's a, it's a big ridiculous scene. Like, you know, he turns the ignition on in his Jeep and it blows up in the driveway. I didn't want to do something like that. Um, I wanted, I wanted it to come very fast and very brutal and out of nowhere. And and so when I got to the interrogation scene, um, I rewrote the, the outlined version of that scene to include what you ended up reading.
2: And if I remember correctly, he isn't even vaporized, right? Nope. Like there's no chance nope. of a Luther Sloan.
1: You can look down at him and see the hole on the deck. You can see the deck, you know, through the hole in him. That's what I wanted to see. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, none of that, none of that, you know, none of that uh, back from the dead stuff. Nope. Not going to happen. So, he's <laughs> dead. D E D. Excellent.
2: Well, yeah, like I said, that was uh that was a complete surprise and you know I kind of have to give you props for that because yeah, that uh that definitely caught me off guard.
1: Yeah, I think I, I don't I don't like I said, I don't do that kind of thing very often at all. So, you know, I figured I might catch some people sleep and they might have to back up a page too and they're like, what the hell just happened?
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, um, a major theme of this novel uh, seems to be the importance of discovering the truth, regardless of where it leads. And we see that both in the A and the B plot. And I feel like, you know, not wanting to get up on a soapbox or anything, but I feel like truth is something that really needs to be talked about at this moment in history in particular. And I was kind of wondering what your thoughts on the importance of objective truth is, especially in the light of, you know, certain real world events that we can or 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 we can choose to get into or not, as you prefer.
0: <laughs> well, I mean,
1: as far as how it relates to the story, yeah, that's the that's the basic theme of the story is finding the truth. Um, and, you know, with respect to Picard, and, you know, the, the 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 incident that we're talking about that he's involved in goes back, you know, several years in novel continuity. And it's one of those things that's it's it's, it's, a, it's a very out of it's an out of character thing for Picard to have done at all. Um, and then to carry that around with him. And so I started pulling on that. I'm like, all right, he would have done it when he did this. You know, it's not like he relished the idea of what he did. He viewed it as a necessary evil for a greater good. And so he insulated as far as telling the rest of his crew. He never told Riker. He never told Crusher. He never told anybody. He just—it's—it's it's one of those. It's like Cisco reading into the recorder. You know, when he got the Romulans into the war, it's—it's it's this personal burden that he's carried for all these years, and it's—it's it's weighed on him uh, because it defies everything that—that that makes him who he is. And once he's confronted with it and that there's, you know, people are going to be answering for these crimes, including people that he considers to be friends and supporters, he's not going to stand on the sidelines and let other people take the bullet for him. He's going to he's going to walk into it and take the lumps he knows are coming and are deserved. And so and that to me, that went back to that, that, you know, that bit with Wesley. In in the, the the episode, the first duty, where he gets on Wesley about the truth, you know, and the first duty to every you know of every Starfleet officer is to the truth, and the different types of truth, personal truth or scientific truth or whatever. And I knew I couldn't get away with getting out of the. I couldn't get out of this book without bringing that back around, um, and and throwing it back, not throwing it back in his face, but throwing it back up there for him to reflect on it again. Now, as far as you know, the pursuit of truth in the, in the modern day, the current day, the current day. Oh my God, where do we start? Um, uh, you know, truth is truth. Facts are facts. Uh, everything else is an opinion or a detail. And, um, the idea that we can have different types of truth depending on who's in the office and who's their cheerleader and who's their enemy is ridiculous. Uh, you know, it's, it's frankly exhausting to have to deal with this on a daily, if not hourly basis. Uh, right up until like an hour before I sat down to have this interview with you guys, I was screaming at my computer because of, you know, the latest in this circus. Uh, I don't want to dwell on politics too long, but you know, yeah, the pursuit of truth is always of paramount importance. No matter where it goes and how, how unpleasant it gets, and no matter how many people get, you know, how many people will get caught up in it, that's just the way it is. Um, if we can't respect the truth and the process to, to reveal the truth and bring it to light, then I don't know what the hell we're doing.
2: And I really feel like as a Star Trek fan, um, I mean, I I of course learned a lot from my parents and they're very, you know, influential in shaping who I am, but also, watching Star Trek as a kid yeah. really just you want to grab people and, you know, make them absorb the lessons that, you know, Picard gave to Wesley in the first duty and that sort of thing. And that like it's yeah. just got drilled into it. And us. that
1: was and for Picard in particular, it's like, you know, it's he's 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 always talked a good game about it. And for the most part he's been a good model for that. I mean, you know, there are, there are times and, you know, but he's a human. So he's made decisions or mistakes that have brought him at odds with that. And that's just being human. That's, that's not being evil. That's just, you know, that's life. And, you know, it's what you do, why you do the things you do that, are, that would seem to be in conflict with your values. Are they, you know, you might do something that's in conflict with your personal values, but you're not doing it for personal gain. You're doing it for what you perceive to be a greater good. Or, you know, so it's like, he can, he can, it's kind of like Cisco, you know, it violated his every moral fiber to do what he did in that episode, but it saved how many millions of lives from being snuffed out and he can live with it. You know, he looks right into the camera and says he can live with it. I'm like, that's kind of where Picard was on a different scale, but you know, at the same time when it when and then when the time comes for him to face the music, so to speak, you know, he box at the idea that other people are going to take that, that hit for him. Um, and that's what he tells Akar. It's like, I can't, I can't let other people do that. I have to, I have to face whatever is coming my way. I earn I, I, whatever happens, I earned it, you know?
2: And that's, uh, one of the big reasons why I think it's important. And I love that it's Picard that makes the decision at the end of the novel. He's not ordered home by Akar. He makes that decision himself and informs the Admiral that that's what he's decided to do. I, th- I thought that was hugely important and i didn't even think that that would be how it played out but when i read that i was like of course that makes perfect sense that he would be the one to take responsibility for it and like was that choice do you think that was an inevitable result of picard's moral character for me
1: it was i mean i didn't i, I didn't see any other way out of it from I mean, when i say i mean my personal take on picard is that there was no other option Um, you know, Mm -hmm. and and of course that begs the question of why, you know, why did he keep the secret for so long? Well, we know how, why he kept the secret for so long to come out with it would have caused more strife for the Federation and for Starfleet and their relations with the Klingons and other powers. So he kept his mouth shut. And now that everybody in their world, you know, everybody in the universe knows what happened, you know, there's no point to keeping that secret. And there's no point to trying to dodge the consequences of that action. Um, for me, it was the only possible conclusion for a guy of picard's moral character
2: well of course at the end we do get him ordering the enterprise home like we said and uh he's certainly going to face some music there for sure um i'm assuming this is kind of where david max uh upcoming collateral damage kind of picks up and i was wondering I would like, go
1: with that feeling yeah would, that's a good that's a good hunch that's a good instinct to have okay. i'd go with that yeah <laughs>
2: I have to laugh Are at this t- because
0: I, I went back and re-listened to our interview with you about Hearts and Minds and you were saying how, you know, Picard needs to stay on the Enterprise and if you had anything to do with it, you would keep Picard as captain of the Enterprise. And so now Picard's heading back to Earth and you're like, okay, don't don't make me do it. I'll let somebody else handle that.
1: Well, it's not so much that. <laughs> it's that, you know, Dave started this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is all Dave. <laughs>
1: right. This is all Dave's fault. He's got to um, clean up his mess. And you know, it's he wanted, and he wanted to clean up the mess. He want, and you know, we talked about how it will go, and you know, it's start. You know, don't get us wrong. It's like it's Star Trek. So it's somewhere down the line. It you know, something's going to work out somehow, but um, it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be quick, and it's not going to be painless. Um, that's the whole. It's not about the destination. It's the journey, right? And the journey is going to hurt. Um, as far as what happens at the end well, of the that. my prediction
2: is part. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say my prediction is uh, when they're partway home, there's going to be this whale probe that attacks <laughs> Earth and he's going to
1: – Stop reading my email. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Um, you know, Dave has plenty of twists and turns that he's preparing in the book you're going to read in October uh, and I, I don't want to spoil any of it.
2: Fair but enough. You know, it's that's Dave, probably right? The right? It's choice. Dave Mack.
1: So you know that if there is an easy way and a hard way and an excruciating way for a character to have to go from point A to point B, you know he's going to put him on the excruciating path. That's just Dave, and that's why we love Dave. So um, you know, buckle up.
2: <laughs> I I do have to admit, when I read the Admiral Ross scene, I did just quickly flip back to the front cover. Oh yeah, oh, no Dayton. Yeah,
1: okay. I, yeah. I, I, I channeled a little bit of Dave <laughs> just for one brief shining moment. I did that, but you know, uh, I, I didn't want to steal all his thunder.
0: He'll find a way to bring uh, William Ross back to
1: life. Probably just to piss me off. Yeah, he'll do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. Nah.
2: <laughs> and knowing him, just to kill him again, too. Yeah, so. probably. <laughs> well, uh, one last little bit, and and it was kind of Bruce that was uh, that put this in the notes here. Uh with regards to the title of the novel, now uh I know your love of Rush and you know, penchant for uh naming books after Rush songs. So if I may ask, why available light?
1: Well that's a number of reasons. The obvious one is, you know, the, the 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 obvious one is the ship the 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 Najamri the, 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 the ship, you know, is looking for solar power to recharge its batteries. That's the obvious one. But available light, you know, is to me it was the 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 con- you know between light and shadow where truth bring the truth out from the shadows into the light that kind of thing and and how hard it is to do that given the circumstances that that everybody's facing it's it's not a matter of black and white it's not a matter of right necessarily you know hard, right and hard wrong it's there's a lot of gray there and there's a lot of mitigating circumstances and and I try to have the characters even you know particularly Aka'ar and um louvois they're you know they they talk about this it's like you know we you know if, if we're willing to admit it. He kind of did us a favor <laughs> and, and things like that. It's like, there's just, you know, the truth, the truth is there, but, you know, getting to it is not a black and white proposition. Uh, the truth is immutable, but how you get there, that's where the interesting part is, um, which is also why stuff like the Klingon scene I threw in where, you know, they basically say that dude's the man, you know, he totally was a Klingon for like 10 seconds. Um, that's the idea is the, is the search for truth and, and bringing it into the light.
2: I'm glad you brought that up because I I loved that moment where basically the Klingons are like, that's the most Klingon thing those humans (laughs) have ever done.
0: (laughs) I'm glad you brought it up too. I mean, I I forgot that part. And that was really great too, because I'm thinking, oh crap, now the Klingons are going to get pissed. But if anything, they just found out, you know, they have more respect. They're like, yeah, well, that's the Klingon way of doing
1: things. and, And the funny thing is I said that to, I said that to Dave or somebody when I was talking about how I was working on the story. I said, I think it ended up basically starting off as a joke. I was like, you know, if the Klingons, the Klingons are probably going to think he's pretty badass, right? Um, I mean, think, can, you, can you picture Worf just telling Picard, yeah, dude, you, you know, you were totally Klingon there. For, that's, that's the most Klingon, like you said, that's the most Klingon thing you've ever done. Um, it was a joke at the time. And then I realized, no, wait a minute, hang on a second. That's what they would do. <laughs> that's what, totally what they would do. I mean, we're talking about people who execute each other for talking bad about their family, um, this is not that stre- this is not that far a stretch. Mm-hmm. They, had, you know, and in the Klingons' eyes, they identified a dishonorable person. They they identified the party who dishonored their house and eliminated them. That's totally Klingon.
0: Absolutely,
2: definitely, and of course, the fact that the original slight was against the Klingon right. Empire, basically. They totally see Picard as avenging them,
1: and that, basically. That's almost going back to a bit of you know, Picard is given a measure of respect within the Klingon Empire. Um, you know, he's done some things that were beyond what Klingons would typically expect from a human. You know, like when he stood up for Worf. Uh, you know, uh, in uh, *Sins of the Father* and and stood as a second and and that sort of thing. I mean, they 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 acknowledged. The, the what he did in terms of you know from a human standpoint you know he totally stepped up regardless so they're going to respect him for that and then the, the stuff that he did later on to help with the end of the of the klingon civil war i mean they all there is a measure of respect that's afforded to picard that other captains might not get or other Starfleet officers might not get. So it's nice to kind of thread through all of that.
2: And I love that you were able to reference the fact that he's got a statue in the Hall of Warriors.
1: <laughs> yeah. Where did I read that? I read that in a book somewhere. It was a travel guide. Yeah. Maybe some sort of
2: travel guide that people should pick Inside
1: up. Inside <laughs> edition to August 2017, available at bookstores near you.
2: <laughs> Perfect. Well, speaking of things that are available at a bookstore near you, either in the past or in the present or in the future... Uh, what have you got working on that maybe some of us uh, listeners here might want to hear about?
1: Well, um, the stuff that I can talk about, um, I'm working. Well, not working. I did it. It's coming out in a couple of weeks. But you know, Toy Story Four is coming, and so Inside Editions had already commissioned me to do last year. I, you know, they did. I did a couple of these little Incredible Builds book and model sets. You know, where I write the book that goes along with a little wooden model, and so we did one for the TOS Enterprise and one for the Next Gen Enterprise. And those came out last summer. Well, this they called me and asked me if I wanted to do anything Disney-related, so they put me on a couple of Toy Story projects. So I did one for Sheriff Woody and one for Buzz Lightyear. And they will come out in, I think, May 6th is when they are due out, right you know, right in conjunction with the ramp-up to the new film. As far as Star Trek is concerned, um, I got some things going, but I can't really talk about it. Uh, nothing's been formally announced, but they have, I have been at work <laughs> since the last time we talked.
2: Good. Well, that's definitely exciting to hear about. So, and my Kirk Fu manual, <laughs> we'll which was also it. from Inside
1: Editions, got bumped back. It was actually supposed to come out originally slated March of this year, but um, there's been some shuffling going on at Inside Editions. I think they acquired a smaller book publisher and took over all of their pending projects, and a couple of them are actually Star Trek related. And so, my Kirk Fu manual got bumped. It'll be out next March. So, I got to wait a whole extra year for that to come out. Oh, wow. I'm kind of bummed. Yeah. But that's the way mm-hmm. it goes. it was out of it was out of my editor's control. It was out of you know my control, obviously, um, but I mean, I delivered that manuscript a year ago, um, and I'm just kind of in a limbo waiting on that one because I really want that one to be out. I just want to have so much fun with that book,
2: <laughs> yeah, we're definitely looking forward to that one, so uh, yeah, we'll have to adjust the calendars, but still definitely looking forward to it, and then
1: I'm working on a short story for a a science fiction anthology, not a Star Trek deal that will be out uh later this year. It's, it's called Footprints in the Stars. That's the name of the anthology. And all the stories are not – they're not about first contact, but they're about human interaction with evidence of alien civilization, other, other alien civilizations. So that can take the form of you know technology or uh, remains or ships or whatever, um, but the idea is not, these are not first contact stories. So um, in fact, I'm wrapping up my story to give to her tomorrow, hopefully.
2: Excellent. Well, where can uh, people find you online if they want to, you know, stalk you and wait for all the all the other stuff you have coming up? <laughs> I am
1: forever to be found at DaytonWar.com on the World Wide Web. Um, and you can go there and find links to my blog and my Facebook page and my Twitter account and my Instagram account and uh, various places where I have a lot of writing like StarTrek.com or other websites like that. DaytonWard.com, your one-stop shopping.
0: All right, yeah. And I also noticed you worked in at least one Discovery reference into this book. At least one. I don't know if there was more
2: than one, but <laughs> I know there was at least one. At least one. I heard there was two. I, I think I missed the second one. but
1: I have to go back and respond wrong. to that one on the board. That's not a Discovery reference. Um, mostly, be, mostly for the fact that by the time I would have been in a position to make that Discovery reference, the book was already put to bed. Um, oh
0: wait, well, so wait, what are we talking about? Because I'm talking Georgia, of course. Right, that mm-hmm. one's obvious.
1: But right. somebody, somebody on one of the board on the Trek BBS board said that uh, Admiral Ackbar made some reference to Section Thirty-One operating out in the open, and it seemed like that was a reference to you know what they did this year on Discovery. And I'm like, there's no uh, way I could have made that reference because my book was put to bed before the first episode of the season aired. So, yeah, I didn't a, make that okay.
0: assumption. Yeah. So
1: I didn't yeah. I didn't I didn't yeah, get I didn't catch you. I, I mean I get where they, how it could be interpreted that way, but that's that's at least not my that was not my conscious intent, no. Right. Hmm. And the Giorgio 1 came about because somebody on Facebook his name is Will Nguyen came up with the idea that Picard would admire Giorgio, uh, you know, for the exploration stuff that she did earlier in her career, you know, and and or effectiveness her overall effectiveness as an officer and a commander. And so I kind of decided to to take his idea, and we're crediting him, of course, and uh, work it into the narrative.
2: Yeah, I saw that he got an acknowledgement at the end. Yeah. So So um, I'm I'm friends with that guy. I so asked him first, and he said awesome. he was okay with he's it. And I said I'll
1: make sure you get a shout out and the acknowledgements. So um, he was very kind. He was very very cool with that idea. That's great. Yeah. Uh,
2: no, he he was thrilled for sure. So that's really cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just happened to see the. You know, he's a, he, I'm a friend of him too, and he's a friend of mine on Facebook. Or and I just happened to be. Uh, at a point where I was working on the edits to the book at the same time, but I was taking a break and I was, you know, doing what you do, surfing, surfing through social media and saw that thread of his and piped him, Hey, uh, that's a pretty cool idea. Mind if I borrow it?
2: (laughs) Well, I guess, uh, with that said, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Uh, it sounds like we're going to be able to do it again in the future. So that's exciting.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm planning on it. So
2: (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day. Yeah, evening. thanks for having me
1: on. Talk to you next yeah, time. Thanks.
0: So, this is really exciting, Dan, because I think about just a couple of years ago where we're sitting around saying, oh my gosh, are we going to get more Star Trek novels? You know, when's that going to happen? And there was this lull of nothing new. And then we started to get some now with Discovery and stuff. But now I feel like we're back on the bandwagon and picking
2: up where we left things off with, you know, the 24th century at this point. Mhm It really does feel like a homecoming for uh that star trek post nemesis novel verse i it's It's an ongoing story that's been decades being made, and well, almost two decades, I guess, <laughs> but you know they're great stories that I'm really glad that they they're sticking with them at least in the short term. We don't know exactly what impact the Picard series is going to have when we get there. Uh, But for now we get at least a little bit of a continuation of the story and some picking up of some major plot points from the past. Uh, And it's really, really good to see that continuing on. It's such a perfect time
0: because we're reading, you know, we just read the time Two series and we're reading these other post nemesis books that, tie into what we're just, I mean, oh my gosh, I'm just like, I, I'm as like thrilled about this right now as I am about when we were watching season two of discovery.
2: Yeah. I'm right there with you for sure. And this connects to that too, you know, with control section
0: 31. So
2: yes, that's absolutely true. There's, there's definitely some connective tissue there. Some ideas that are are being shared between them. So, you know, it's there's, there's rewards for sticking with the novels and for, Uh, you know incorporating that into your own personal star trek experience you know i know there's comparatively few of us reading them compared to how many people watch the show but you know we're rewarded i think for following along with the novels well it's been fun talking about these silly little non-canon stories that are more meaningful than you think today but it's not the only thing we've been discussing here on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM.
1: Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. But I don't know, like that that one as I was looking through the examples, I was like, that's pretty badass to just take that risk. And I think Riker's taken aback. He's like, you're gonna kill Deanna? No, don't do that. But I, I think she convinces him, like, this is this is the way we have to, to do it. So I don't know, what do you think?
2: Wow, that was not even <laughs> on my radar. <laughs> Versus... <laughs> well, of course it's killing I Troy. I know, yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Literary, Trex. It, it always
1: frustrated me because on, on screen, we saw in depth the Klingon government, the Bajoran government, the Cardassian government, to a lesser extent the Romulan government, we almost never saw the Federation government. You know, we, we three three times we saw a president, once we saw the council. The council was mentioned any number of times, but we never really saw it. Warp five.
2: I thought it was cool when he when he, he hits it.
1: It was like, like knocking like on the door. It's like,
2: so did they install like a wooden neck for him or something? Right. You know? it, it doesn't make any sense.
1: You know what? I leave that up to, I guess people had less knowledge of biology overall, you know, the general public in 1939, so yeah. whatever. we got to
2: file that under, we, we just got to go with it and we'll file that under our neck cannon.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly.
2: Melodic Treks. Star Trek Three was Christopher Lloyd's crew. You know? Mm-hmm. And and I mean, the, the, his impact on, on that culture and race of Klingons and of the rest of the franchise is, is, is still being felt. And, and to me, he's my second favorite Star Trek uh, movie villain, right? Khan would obviously be first, and then Krug is number two after that for me. Not the whale probe? Is the, the whale probe is just misunderstood.
1: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
2: Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, and most third-party apps, and you can
2: stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, a free trip to the virtual reality of the Asijamal, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at Patreon.com/TrekFM. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's
0: show, and there are many ways you can do that. The best place to join in the conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. And you can find the network on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook at
2: facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. And there are also great conversations happening about all the books and comics in the message boards. Just search for literary treks on Goodreads and click join group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chemutala. Justin Ozer and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not looking to prosecute the myriad of admirals and captains that had dealings with section 31, where can we find you? Well, then you can find me just uh, being an innocent guy doing nothing.
0: Then if I have no admirals to attack, so you can find me on Twitter tweeting about that at admiral underscore rex <laughs> i guess i'm an admiral <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> oops oh admiral underscore rex and you can find me uh here on the network doing live from the edge where we of course we finished discovery this season but uh you can go back and listen to those past episodes and if any short tricks come up brandy and i will probably be covering that live and uh, you can find me on the star wars report about star wars and of course i'm always in the babel conference And Dan, when you're not turning the ship around to head back to Earth to deal with uh, the assassination of President Zeif to see if you're guilty or not, where can people find you?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, you can find me um, proclaiming my innocence on Twitter. (laughs) I'm at Kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can also find me on facebookcom Productions and on youtubecom Productions, where I have a YouTube channel talking all about Star Trek all the time, and uh, also in the Babel Conference, usually lurking but sometimes chatting. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and until next time, live long and read on.
1: You call that light reading? To each his own. Number one.